Welcome to the Codependent Me Podcast. I'm Tamara Shaw, a recovering codependent, a codependent life coach, and the co-author of God Turned Mommy's Wine Into Water. This podcast was created to increase the awareness of codependency and to give a more holistic look at the journey and healing of codependence. Welcome to the Codependent Me podcast. I am your host, Tamala Shaw, and today we have guest Agape Garcia. She's going to tell us about herself, and I'm so very excited for her to be here to talk about PTG. Welcome, Agape. Hi, thank you for having me here. It's such an honor. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, I know that we met on Podmatch. I like to mention it because it has allowed me to link up with the most wonderful people. So they get their uh, they get their shout outs. But thank you so much for being willing to be on the show. So tell us a little about a little bit about yourself. Oh my gosh, a little bit about myself. <laughs> okay. A lot a bit about you. Um, well, I was born and raised. Okay, a lot of it. <laughs> okay, um, I was born and raised in Chicago, um, in the city, not the outskirts, um, where, you know, it was not the best neighborhood. Um, definitely made it through some serious traumatic events as a child. Um, you had mentioned that I am here to talk about PTG, and I think I would like to first kind of explain what that is. So as I go through my story, people understand. Um, PTSD is something that almost everybody is familiar with. We know, uh, or we learn and we hear so much about what PTSD does, how it impacts us, what we go through because of it, the implications and whatnot. And PTG is something that is not readily heard of. A lot of people have not uh, heard of it or understand what it is. PTG is post-traumatic growth, and it's actually um, fairly new. It's been around since the early 90s. It was identified by two psychologists, uh, Dr. Tedeschi and Dr. Calhoun. And basically, my personal research and my personal story uh, and my testimony kind of equates to my personal definition of post-traumatic growth, which to me means that you become stronger and wiser from a traumatic experience and do something about that and mm-hmm. do something with that. Um, so that's what what PTG represents and stands for. And we all have the capability of doing it. All of us. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure everybody's it. clear on that. Um, so, so as a child, I would have to say that <clears throat> trauma probably began while I was, you know, um, an embryo in my mother's pregnant stomach because she, you know, claimed to have been in a, you know, a violent relationship with my dad. And after she had me, um, it was within two years that she packed her bags and left. But she left, only her. She left me and my baby sister behind in the environment that she ran away from. So <clears throat> shortly after her departure, 
my baby sister was diagnosed with cancer and it, it didn't take long for her life to be taken because back then they didn't have the technology that they have today to kind of, you know, fight it off and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it was almost overnight that my dad, you know, went through his, I don't want to say overnight that he went through his trauma, but it was, it was both of us at the same time. He lost his wife. She ran away. He just lost his baby girl and he's by himself. And now he's just looking mm-hmm. at me like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this little girl on my own? You know? Mm-hmm. And so the way that he dealt with his trauma was he worked third shift and slept all day. So in his brain, he was still being a responsible parent. Mm-hmm. But in reality, he was checked out. He was not there. Mm-hmm. So for me, every single thing that a that a child could possibly have as avoidance in their life, I just got it all at one time. My mm-hmm. mother left, my sister's you know, dead, mm-hmm. and my dad's gone. Okay. Hello world. Right. So that's basically, um, that was at age three. So that was, that was my first three years of life. Okay. (laughs) So, so I really don't have much recollection of those, of the next two years. I remember starting kindergarten. I remember being shown two days in a row by my dad, how to walk to school. Okay. It was a mile away. I had, but back then they had crossing guards. Back then, you yeah. know, there was yeah, things yeah, yeah. that you, <laughs> that was <laughs> there on the corner. And yeah. um, I was, yeah, you know, but I, and I was expected to walk to and from school not, since I knew the route as a kindergartner. Okay. Oh Every now and then I would get a ride from a neighbor or somebody that, you know, said that they knew me and, you know, whatever. Um, and so that's kind of where my life, I would have to say, began was at school for several reasons. Um, instinctively, as a child, obviously, I had no idea. I had no capacity of understanding what's a void, what's, you know, what is trauma, what is, you know, depression. I didn't know any of these things. I'm a kid. So what I did know is that home was a sad place. Home was so quiet that it was a loud ringing in my ear. You know, I would cry sometimes going to sleep because it, I'm by myself. I would cry sometimes waking up because I'm by myself. And it was just such a lonely place, you know. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, you know, I knew that at such a young age that when things came up at school, like after school programs or, you know, the neighborhood park having gymnastics or wood shop or whatever the heck, acting, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I signed up. Me, as a little girl, like, I'm signing myself up for all that. <laughs> I didn't need parental signature. Like, I just said, I'm in, and I showed up. Mm-hmm. And I think about it now, and I'm like, dang, nobody questioned that. Like, it was just okay. Um, and thank goodness that it was. Yes. <laughs> because I don't know what I would have done if it wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know? So I was. I would have to say that because of my situation, I put. I made myself somehow, some way, a person that just wanted to achieve, you know, so I was, I was studious. I was good with my, with my schoolwork and my homework. And I had, you know, integrity on what I was putting my name on. And I wanted to get involved in everything. I was almost in every single play the school had. And I'm telling you every after school program, um, you know, and there was times where I will walk to the cemetery where my sister was buried because that was closer Mm -hmm. to my school than where I lived. Mm -hmm. So I spent 
hours and weeks at the cemetery just doing homework. That's where I felt emotionally bonded. That's where I felt some sort of love, some sort of connection. I wasn't getting that anywhere else, mm-hmm. you know? So um, I would have to say by sixth, like fifth, sixth grade, um, I was washing cars, cleaning houses, pulling weeds, mowing the lawns, watching the baby while somebody's taking a shower or making dinner, delivering newspapers. And I was doing all that because um, I needed to go to the store to buy groceries for myself. Remember, my dad worked third shift. So while he's awake, I'm sleeping. So he's eating during, you know, his night shift while, again, I'm sleeping. So during the daytime, he's sleeping. He's not thinking about food, water, none of that. So here I am now with already, you know, developing a work ethic and making little side money and just to take care of myself. And, uh, you know, we moved a lot. I think there was reasons that we moved a lot. Um, We moved almost every single time the lease was up. And A, I think that one of the reasons is because, you know, there was always some neighbor calling DCFS and having, you know, me and the home, my dad, whatever, you know, investigated. I was never taken, which is quite a surprise, actually. But I was never taken. But it was it was every year. It was every week. It was every year, uh, whether it was the school or the neighbors, because it's not like I was his punching bag. I just feel like looking back, I feel like he didn't know his own strength when we were play fighting. Mm-hmm. He was letting out his, you know, frustrations or aggressions. I, you know, I don't know. Anyways, <clears throat> that part of violence was, a, you know, there was that component of violence in my life because I was getting it, you know, basically from home. And then it was outside my door. Remember, I grew up in Chicago and we're moving all the time. Mm-hmm. So every neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. and as you get older, mo- moving all the time. Uh, and as you get older, that doesn't typically work out as as easily, you know, mm-hmm. because. There's gangbangers, there's colors, there's hats that you cock to the left, to the right. There's shoelaces that you wear. There's shoe shoe brands that, that you, you know, wear. You know, back in my day, it was all about the British Knights, baby, you know? Yes, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> and how you rocked it. Yeah. Yeah. So be careful where you're walking with those because, right? Right, yeah. So it was, um, I always had to have situational awareness. You know, if you're not paying attention to what's happening around you, you might get got. And mm. I've been chased. I've I've been groped. I've almost been kidnapped. I've ran for my life from being, you know, groped and damn near kidnapped. Like, I have gone through so much as a little girl. Um, <clears throat> so I would have to say that by fresh, by high school, school you couldn't tell me nothing you couldn't tell me nothing i already knew the streets i already knew how to get around i was stealing my dad's car while he was knocked out i'm getting and going wherever i want um i already know how to make money i can take care of myself you could i swore up and down that i was already an adult by then and i probably was in my mind obviously but (laughs) only in such this minute space yeah right right and so um, I would have to say my entire life changed as soon as I hit high school. As good as a student that I was in grammar school, honor roll student, I mean, just just keeping everything together. By the time I hit high school, I 
I was, I wasn't, I was checked out. I wasn't really, I was showing up, but I wasn't there. I didn't care. I just wanted life because I felt that I knew all about it and could handle it and take it on. By my fresh, by my sophomore year, I had already dropped out. I had already dropped out of high school. I, um, I, I got together with, um, this boy I met at the park, you know, hanging out. Um, he wasn't about the game banging and neither was I. So I felt that it was a safe, uh, you know, relationship to start mm-hmm. at least. Um, and then I didn't know, of course, you know, not only did I have mommy issues, apparently I had daddy issues too, <laughs> of <course>. <laughs> because here I am, you know, he was dropping just, out yeah. of high school and accepting. He, he wasn't really, he wasn't that role, that protector that you needed. Yeah. Yeah, there was no real like life conversations. This is what you do. This is what you look out for. This is how you handle this. This is what, you know, critical thinking is or this is what it was none of that. Whatever I learned, it was at school and for all of you listeners, you know, if you don't if you don't learn it from home, you'll learn it on the street. The streets will teach you. Yeah. So I was taught a whole lot, okay? <laughs> and um and like I said, I, I, it's almost textbook, you know, when I dropped out of high school to be with that boy, um, you know, it was a violent relationship. That's, that's all we knew. We were all in the same neighborhood. The violence mm-hmm. that he had, it was the same violence that I saw, you know, mm-hmm. same thing. So yeah. that I, th- I feel like when you, when you're born into violence and every time you step out your house and it's violence and you go to school and there's metal detectors to walk it through before you could even get in and there's fights every day mm-hmm. outside, inside, whatever. Yeah, it's, yeah, what's wrong with it, (laughs) you know? Um, So I would have to say that, you know, through that, through my, the the roughest teenage years, right, from, I would say like 14 to 17, not only was I dealing with that guy, but, you know, I'm also with my girlfriends and we're running the streets and we're having a ball and, you know, um, I learned Spanish from the street, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm Italian, but I learned Spanish from outside my house because every single friend, we didn't have cell phones back then, girl. We beepers were barely coming out. Okay. <laughs> so when I'm calling the house and their mom or grandma's answering their, the phone in Spanish and I'm all like, uh, Monica, <laughs> <laughs> I said, Oh boy, I better learn. I better learn so I could, you know, get around and get through and, yeah. and all that. So, um, so I did. Yo puedo hablar la- como yo soy like you know one of them (laughs) and and I had to figure it out because it was the only way that I was going to get through the neighborhood at this time you know and so so that ended up being a bonus part of it and with that um the, the the Latina culture is so welcoming they're so beautiful I love all my mommies even though my mother did what she did because she didn't have the strength to do whatever she was supposed to do Mm-hmm. My Puerto Rican mothers, are you kidding? I have like seven. They <laughs> were, as soon as they found out that I, you know, my situation, that I'm the only child, my mother's nowhere around, my father's never, you know, oh, around. They were like, oh, yep. Let me feed you. Let me teach yes. you. Let me tell you what's up. Now yep. I was like, give me, give me. Okay. I was hungry for it all. I wanted it all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know? So yeah, so they they really they really instilled so much street smart in me, you know, um, during that time, 
Um, but of course, you're you're blinded by love as a as a young child, and you think that you know this is the one, and this is where I'm drawn, and my heart is here, and yeah. <laughs> so I um, was pregnant by 17, and same guy, by the way, that you know I was dating from my sophomore year, and it got to the place where during my pregnancy it was just so violent. He turned into something else and I think I was about seven months and we got into a really bad brawl and I ended up I felt my heart pounding through my chest I couldn't even count that fast and I said oh my god I know I, I know I need to go to the hospital I literally like knocked on the neighbor's door I did not even drive myself and um, just pleaded for them to please drop me off and honey I was admitted admitted right away um, I ended up developing tachycardia arrhythmia. I had to put a heart monitor on for the rest of my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And while I was laying there in the hospital, I said, you know, this ain't it. This is not it. I am not bringing my baby into a world that I was brought into. I am not going to be the mother that I was or that I'm sorry, that I had. I'm going to be the mother that you know, that everybody is to me now. I'm going to have right. all combine all these beautiful women and I'm going to be that one for mine, you know, and I'm not going to drag my baby around and have her exposed to the drugs, the alcohol, the game banging, all the stuff that my dad exposed me to. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, um, after I had her, he turned to the streets. Remember I said he wasn't game banging when I met him. Mm. After I had my daughter, he decided to turn. And I knew right then and there, like, okay, I'm I'm not going to ride in the car with you. I'm not going to be marked because of you. I'm not going to risk my baby's life on your behalf. Like, I don't know where your mind is at. I don't even know who you are anymore. Now I need to pack my bags and my baby and go. And believe it or not, yep. And believe it or not, his mama helped me pack my bags and go because she knew, you know. And that's her grandbaby. Yeah. And that's her son and her grandbaby. That's right. And I ended up moving to a place that most people would pass up. It was, you know, a basement uh, with cement floors and brick walls, no heat, just a bathroom and the laundry facility. And, you know, I made the best of it. I put carpet. I had the crib. I had the dresser. I got the microwave. It was like I made a little studio for us to just, you know, get settled, be at a place of peace, which is way more valuable than anything, yes. and um, figure it out, you know? And, um, and so that's what I ended up doing. And I'll tell you that he got in so much trouble on the streets that he, you know, the abuse didn't stop from him. You know, he stalked, he taunted, he, anything possible to just sabotage was like his ammo. To the point where I'm outside, you know, on like the three-wheeler with my daughter, and he shows up in the car, in his car, grabs her off the big wheel, puts her in his car, and starts taking off down the street. That I'm like running down the street. I throw myself on the hood of the car. You better stop the car. My baby's not even a car seat. What are you doing? I mean, like, I didn't know he was high. I don't know if he was high, if he was drunk. I just knew he was going, he was out of control. Right. And... um he was driving like a maniac like this and that to get me off the car, which he was successful in doing about a mile away because I was holding on for dear life, screaming at the top of my lungs. 
thankfully, uh, uh, somebody heard and saw and called the police. By the time I had ran back to the house, the, the cops were there. You know, my shoes were torn up and frail because I was being dragged down the streets, you know, by the car. And um, they ended up bringing my baby back home, you know, because I don't know why he was so stupid in doing all that. And then he just went home. <laughs> like, I don't know what his thought process was at the time. But anyways, I I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to, like, just leave the neighborhood, period. I have got to get the heck way up out of here. So mm -hmm. I went back to get my GED. And, you know, I was working part time and, you know, like I said, working towards my GED, the job that I had, I must have built some great work ethics as a kid, because in my adult life, while I'm working, I was blessed enough to have my bosses or the owners of the company. They let me bring my baby to work. I had my baby in a walker at work. Okay. When they, when they asked me, yes, when they asked me to do overtime and come in on a weekend, I would get the shipping bin that's like huge with all the popcorn like stuffing yes. and put her in there like it was the playpen with the toys and like throw paper balls and we would have a blast while I'm working. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like, there's a way when there's a will, there is a way, that's right. you know, that's I right. really just want to say that too. I mean, I felt like I was in survival mode as a child without realizing it. Instinctively, I was able to figure out how to replace the negative with positive. And that was, like I said, you know, the extracurricular activities and things that I got involved with. I found ways to close those gaps. And, you know, moving on in life, I still had that mindset because I'm still young at this point in time where I'm sharing with you, you know. And so um, my very last day of GED class, they said, tomorrow is the last day for you to sign up for college. If you want to get your associate's degree, you need to sign up by tomorrow. Girl, I was there in line. Okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, because in my mind, I'm thinking like, this is the way out. This is the way out, right. you know? Mm -hmm. So he had got into so much trouble that he ended up leaving the States. Okay, he went, he flew to Puerto Rico and, and stayed there because he felt that that was the safest place for him and where he wouldn't get caught, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever. <laughs> and so the child support was not a thing. He, mm -hmm. you know, being an active parent in my daughter's life was not a thing. It mm -hmm. was literally all on me. Mm -hmm. And then I was dealing with his mom, you know, and his mom was very successful in brainwashing the crap out of me. She said multiple, like multiple times, Oh, you know, you didn't have a mom, so you don't know how to be a mom. You don't understand what it takes or what it requires because you didn't have one. You're not going to understand her cries. You're not going to understand her needs. You know, I have five of my own. A grandmother understands their grandchild more than their own children because they're oh. so, you know, experienced and versed. And oh, my gosh, girl, I cannot tell you how many times I called the police to get my own daughter back. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't find out or realize until later and, you know, maybe like a two years that she's having my daughter call her in Spanish. When it's your grandma, you call them abuela mm -hmm. and like in slang is huela, right? She's having my daughter call her mommy huela, mommy huela. I'm your mommy and your huela. Yes. And I'm like, oh. Oh, heck no. Like, are you kidding me? I just got rid of, like, 
one beast. Now I'm dealing with a bigger beast. Mm. Oh my gosh. I couldn't. So I ended up like taking my daughter and putting her in daycares. And that lady would show up at the daycares. Okay. Starting arguments to the point where my daughter would get kicked out of the daycare because of the drama that the grandmother was, you know, bringing to their doorstep. So I was, I was in this constant battle, just this constant battle, which was giving me the motivation to get further and further away. And so um, I, I did start towards my associate's degree. And as soon as my daughter was able to um, get to school full time, mm-hmm. that was when I moved far out the neighborhood where the well, I couldn't even come if she wanted to, you know, in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I set myself up to the point, literally, where I live right across the street from where my daughter goes to school. I work four blocks to the west and the lady that's helping me watch my daughter lives four blocks to the east. Okay. (laughs) So even if my car broke down, (laughs) she was not going to miss school and I was not going to miss work. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because I, because I had developed this extreme independence. That's right. Extreme. Yeah. And, and, and that's one thing I really want to share with the listeners is that extreme independence is a trauma driven response. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't even know it because it's just automatic and it's natural and you're, and you're just going with what you feel is, is the most safest thing for you to do. Um, but I think I took it way over the top <laughs> to the point where I just kept protecting and putting all these layers of protection to where it was like I didn't need anybody for anything. And it was more because I felt like I couldn't trust anybody. And I literally convinced myself as a child, if your own mother can leave you, anybody can do anything to you. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. that is like animals don't even abandon their their cubs. <laughs> animals do not do that. You know, so, so what the heck am I, if my mother did that, if my own mother could do that to me, I ain't nothing to nobody. And that is how I identified myself and protected myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it worked for a while, but that's not going to last forever, which I realized afterwards. I think the other, the other part was, even though your dad was present, he really was not present. So you still couldn't really count on him for certain things either. So you had, you were what you had. So that's how you built your life. I will be what I need because I can't count on anything else because I was failed as a child. So you were never taught that you could count on, you know, you know, when your parents are not there, it's like you said, that's just a lot of trauma behind that. I can see that. Yeah. And usually, you know, it's one parent that's absent, usually. But to have both parents absent is a little, you know, and then not to have a sibling, you know. And then I I didn't know my my mother's side of the family, only her mom and dad, which, you know, I did see quite often as a little girl, not so much after high school. Um, You know, and then my dad's side of the family, he had three sisters, so I do have three aunts. But they were younger and, you know, their life, they, none of them had kids. They, they grew up and they got the heck out too, mm-hmm. you know? And that's one thing that my dad said to me through my entire childhood. As soon as you turn 18, you're no longer my responsibility. As soon as you're 18, you're no longer my responsibility. When I was 14, I ran away from home for months, 
you know, he was looking for me. He did find me. He brought me home, whatever. It didn't, it didn't patch anything up between us. He just said that I was stupid and should, I should know better. But if that was his way of reconciling, okay, it didn't change any dynamics within the home. Yeah, Um, And I was already out. Yeah. Yeah. By 16, I already had my own apartment. I came back when I was 17 and then I found out that I was pregnant. And that's when he reminded me when you're 18. And I was like, oh, well, I'm having a baby. And he's like, okay, well, it doesn't change anything. (laughs) And, and, you know, what he did was he waited until I was 18. And then he got, as soon as I turned 18, I'm telling you, and not even, not even that. I think I was out before 18, but when that lease was up, he was already in the process of buying a home 55 miles outside of Chicago in the, in the suburbs. He was planning on getting married. He was getting married to a woman that had three kids of her own, all very young from the ages of like four to eight, three kids. Do you know how that made me feel? Exactly. Absolutely. Girl, I didn't want to, I didn't want to know nothing about her. And I just, I didn't want anything to do with any of them, period. Um, You know, but anyways, I won't talk about that. So, so now that I'm across the street from the school and now I'm going towards my bachelor's degree because I found a college that was able to utilize the few units that I already had for my, um, towards, towards my associates and push it towards my bachelor's. So you couldn't really, you now you couldn't, for real, you couldn't tell me nothing. I'm paying my own bills. Even if my car breaks down, I got it together. I'm not going to miss nothing. My daughter is straight. She's going to school right there. Like, I got everything together. You could not tell me anything. So, um, yeah, that was my mindset. And then I meet somebody else. (laughs) I mean, I meet a lot of people, but, you know, this person I decided to give an opportunity to. And because... I'm working full time because I'm in school part time because I have a, you know, a, a side gig to pay for my tuition and my books. And I'm, you know, so just structured and responsible. Again, Facebook wasn't around back then. There we, there was no way to do like investigative background checks on people like there is today. So when I met this individual and his family and his friends and his co-workers, I'm thinking, man, he's just like me. He's got his stuff together. We're all good, you know. We dated for quite some time, uh, about two years. And um, I I was having his baby as well. And at three months pregnant with my second child, I had developed chickenpox. While I'm at home with chickenpox, he's in another state um, being offered a job. So when he came back, he's like, oh, my gosh, we have an opportunity. I know you have, you know, your life established here and everything here, but this is a huge opportunity. I'm not going to force you. It's really up to you if you want to come or go, like, you know, if you want to wait or come later, whatever you, you know, let's just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And um, it didn't take long, girl. I was like, uh, hello, the big success of getting out the hood is leaving it forever. <laughs> you know, let's go. <laughs> So, um, it just, I just needed time, you know, like while he was out there getting settled and doing all the stuff he needed to do to transition, you know, I'm waiting for my daughter's spring break. I'm waiting for my, you know, semester. Like I'm just waiting for everything to align. Right. Mm -hmm. So I ended up driving across country seven months pregnant with my daughter in the, in the car. And 
you know, I had flown back a few times just to find out, you know, what neighborhood do we want to live in, where, you know, where do we want to kind of settle down and stuff. And uh, when I arrived, it was just pure excitement, literally like, oh, my gosh, this is your new school. Like, he in two days, you're going to be at your new school. Like, she didn't even miss a day of school in transition cross country, you know? Nice. Um, and so my focus was the kitchen. I need to make sure the kitchen is straight. Let's make sure we have everything we need. Mm -hmm. I need to start, you know, getting to know the neighborhood and meet my doctors and prepare for the baby. I, I'm only like two months out. And so it took three weeks for our belongings to arrive. <clears throat> And when the, when our belongings arrived, mine and my daughter's, you know, he was already there. Mm -hmm. So when our belongings arrived, I was so happy for, I just wanted to settle in so I could start nesting already to see what I need, you know? Mm -hmm. And while I'm unpacking, I found remnants of another woman. Mm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, <laughs> what is this? Like the, the, my heart and my mind were on the battlefield just straight duking it out like I couldn't even make sense of any of my thoughts or my feelings I just knew that it was something I had to figure out how to address mm -hmm. and you know here comes here comes my Puerto Rican mamas <laughs> in my brain you know like okay <laughs> you know so so here I am in this brand new state thousands of miles away from home I don't have family or friends where I'm at I quit my job voluntarily. I left the school. I, I'm in this new foreign place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, pride is a big thing for most young folks, especially when you come out of a place where I came out of. And I was too prideful to make any calls or to talk to anybody about it. This was my this was my situation. Mm -hmm. So I had to deal with my situation. You make your bed, you lie in it. That's what I'm that's that's what you're told, right? Yeah, so <laughs> so so I pick up my daughter from school, you know, I end up doing everything like normal. Mm -hmm. I wait for my baby to go to sleep and I say, all right, we need to have a conversation because I was so excited unpacking today and getting everything settled in. And while I was doing all that, I came across, you know, the belongings of another woman. And I don't recall you telling me that you have family or friends or coworkers or anybody here. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, what's all this stuff? It wasn't a whole lot. It was just kind of like two little things, you know, but it was enough for me to know that it belonged to a woman. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, you were going through my stuff? I said, you didn't hear me? I didn't say, I, I didn't, I never was going through your stuff. I said, as I'm unpacking, I am putting stuff away. And I came across, and I couldn't even finish my sentence. He had already smacked me to the floor. And he sat on top of my eight-month pregnant stomach putting his left hand around my neck and closed fist punching me with his right hand over and over and over again. And I'm like, I'm screaming. I'm like trying to figure out what's going on. And I hear, I hear this voice, mom, mom. I never heard that voice in my life because that was my daughter's voice in a scared tone. And I'm telling you that it took not even one second for that for that tone of voice to register in, in my brain. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I clearly remember, I said, that's my daughter. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this like rush of adrenaline flew through my body. 
that I slammed my feet on the ground and I thrusted my hips up and he rolled over me like this. I don't know how in the world that I popped up. I, I just popped up. I ran around the couch, grabbed my baby's hand, and we ran out the door like that. Barefoot, in pajamas, with nothing. Okay? It's like 11, 11 o'clock at night. So I'm like, you know, I don't even know what the heck I look like. I can only imagine. And I'm knocking on the neighbor's door. Please, please, I just need to use your phone. I need to use your phone. I need to call the police, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, they did. They let me in. They let me, you know, use the phone and everything. And I don't know how long it took the cops to get there. All I know is that I was like on the stairs crying, crying, crying. I couldn't even believe, I couldn't even wrap my head around if this is reality. Like, mm-hmm. what just happened? Are you kidding me right now? What is, I couldn't even think straight. I just was in such disbelief that I had no idea what in the world was going to be next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just, I just, there were so many thoughts in my brain. Am I going to be able to have this baby? Is my baby okay? Am I a fit mother? Am I going to be able to do this? Do I need to give him up for adoption? Like, oh my gosh, what mm-hmm. in the world? All these crazy thoughts. Right. The cops arrive. I explain what happened. Um, I did it. He wasn't punching me in the face. He was punching me in the head. And the police said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but he knew what he was doing. Mm. And I didn't understand that. So when they pulled my ear back, my head was so purple and red, yellow. It was already, it was already, you know, ex- pretty extreme. So they took the pictures that they needed to. They went over, you know, to the apartment and knocked on the door and he was there. He didn't even leave, which was weird. Um, they ended up taking him and uh, I didn't have anywhere to go. I had to take my daughter back home, you know, and because, because Wella still lived in the hood it wasn't anything that my daughter was not used to hearing or being a part of as it relates to violence. What was new for both of us was that it was inside the house. It was us. Okay. So I'm saying to her in a, in a playful type manner, you know, like, okay, if I say, let's go, that means you got to jump out the window, get on, jump to this roof, go down on this patio, go to that same neighbor's house, do this, do that. You got it. Okay, mommy. Good night. You know, I'm like, Oh, thank you. You know, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how just receptive she was towards all that. And, you know, little kids don't understand the impact. They're just down for whatever you're going to tell them, you know. And um, I didn't sleep that night. Are you kidding me? I was like, oh, my gosh, what are the laws out here? What, you know, what are my, what are my um, resources? What are, what are, what am I supposed to do? I know nothing. Right. In Chicago, you go, you, you go to jail for domestic violence. You're out the same night. Like, okay. You know, so I had no idea. I had no idea. And thankfully, you know, the, the, the extremity of what he did was enough that, you know, he, he was not left out that, that night. And I, there was a follow-up call saying that he was going to be held until court. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so now all I have in my brain is the clock. The clock is ticking. I need to figure out what the heck am I going to do? I have no job. I can't collect unemployment. Uh, you know, I have my daughter is going to be out of school in two weeks. My son's going to be born, you know, in four weeks. Uh, I Rent is due. This bill is due. That, but what the heck am I going to do? Girl, that story is, an, is a story all in itself because, you know, of course I'm in line for food stamps. Of course I'm in line for shelter. Of course I'm in line for, you know, anything and everything that is, is there to offer because at this point I have nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And, um, you know, at least I was smart enough to take all the paperwork down to the leasing office and get my name off of the lease 
and right. said, you know, that I would do my best to get out as fast as I can. If you need to evict, I understand as long as my name is off the list, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So I, I was successful in that. I was successful in begging the doctors, you know, to give me. I, I was already having a C-section, but I convinced them to uh, give me the C-section 10 days before my planned C-section mm-hmm. just because of the stress that I was in. You know, mm-hmm. and of course, I went to the hospital the next day after that event. You know, I, I took dropped my daughter off at school and checked myself in straight to the ER right away because I had to make sure my baby was OK. Mm-hmm. Again, I had to do that because I, I had nobody to help. Where was I going to take my daughter while I go and check on my unborn baby? Like I just had to, it all had to be timed properly. Mm-hmm. So. I won't get into the nitty gritty about all that happened, like obviously within the first year or two, because that can be just a whole day long conversation in itself. So, so hold on, because I want to want to take a breath for a moment, because you literally went from you were surviving, going to school, doing everything that you were wanting to do to be who you wanted to be. You met someone. And it completely flipped your life upside down because that was that trust. You you decided to trust another human. You let them in. You were guided to this city and failed again. I just wanted I, I just wanted I wanted the audience to be able to hear that. You know, you finally let someone in and you were failed. So now you have to honestly get over that as well. And at the same time, prepare yourself to have a child and take care of the child you already had, plus find shelter, uh, you know, resources, everything, plus find a way to deal with this man who you now know is abusive. Okay. Now, please carry on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'll be honest and tell you that I did show up at court. I was there on the stand. And the worst thing, I, I was talking to the DA prior to, and I was like, yes, yes, this is what happened. This is what exactly what happened. Like telling my story, advising that, you know, I'm ready to go up there and share it. And then they bring him in the room. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I see him and we lock eyes, I shrunk like a punk. I couldn't do it. My voice was like, my voice went from this to. I was, I couldn't pull myself out of it. I had no idea what just happened, how I was robbed of my spirit, of my confidence, of my strength, of my voice. And I had no idea. And so. They're asking me these questions and I'm just, yes, yes, yeah. And thank goodness that the judge was like, I've seen this too many times. This, you know, you guilty and you're being sentenced, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So apparently what that meant, that statement meant was that too many people are afraid to testify. And now that I'm later in life, I'm thinking to myself, I wasn't afraid. It's that you brought him, the man that stripped me of my life, you brought him in front of me. And now everything that I was, you know, out of sight, I'm good. When in front of me, the man that took everything that almost killed me, 
and his own child. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, what, of course. Mm -hmm. So that bothers me today that they still do that because that almost re-victimizes the victim and strips them from their voice and strips them from being confident in 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 testifying verbatim what happened especially and i believe that's something that should change that we should all come together and change yeah there's no there's no there was no preparation right they weren't you know like you don't know how it's going to feel until it happens you don't yep. know what your reaction is going to be to this person whom you loved that all of a sudden decided to try to take you know, your power away. So yeah, that's, that's, ooh, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And by this time, it's like, what, maybe two or three weeks later since the incident, you know, so all this time, I'm thinking like, I've had the time to think, oh my gosh, was this his plan the whole time? I didn't see any red flags before. What did I miss? Why did I, how did I miss it? You know, what could I have done? You know, it's a lot of reflecting, you know, and I'll be honest with you for maybe the first night or two, I'm, I'm just crying to, you know, in my prayers, why, 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 you know, and then I had to figure out quickly, um, there's no time for why there's time to fix and move. So my prayers quickly changed to, you know, thank you for providing a fraction of your pain and suffering. That means that you have your eyes on me and you're touching me. And all I'm asking for now is the strength to endure and the wisdom to do what I need to do. Okay. I got this. Just, just give it to me. I'm just begging for it. Cause I, I knew I couldn't stay in that. Why me place, you know, no time. And, um, you know, so anyways, I, um, after testifying and after having, you know, gone through that situation, um, I had, I think maybe three weeks left before, you know, my baby was due. So mm -hmm. I wasn't as frantic as I was in the past where I was putting, you know, every piece of furniture up against the door, just in case, you know, then it gives, buys me time to run out and make sure that everything's cool. You know, I don't, I don't mind if I got to fight the fight, I'll do that. But as long as my daughter can, has the time to get out while I'm fighting the fight, that, that was my mindset. So so you're absolutely right. At this point, um, you know, my baby is born and I'm thinking, okay, I just need two weeks to heal from a C-section. And then I got to start figuring out what type of job am I going to get? How am I going to afford rent? Like, I didn't even have time to bond with my baby as like I should have. I just, I, all I could do was think about what I needed to do to provide yeah. and protect. And I knew that I couldn't go home. I wasn't going to go back to Chicago. I wasn't. We met there. We have mutual friends there. He almost tried to kill us. Why am I going to go back to a place that he could, you know, find us? And then plus I testified and, you know, uh, it's just a list of things that, you know, going through my brain. So I will um, now just kind of fast forward because I want everybody to know that that incident took place 20 years ago. All right. So for 20 years, I'm raising my kids, you know with a survival mindset, a trauma-driven responsive mindset that I was completely unaware of. It was all about protecting and providing. That's all I could do. And it was in such desperation because it, I'm by myself in a whole new space. And it's like a hungry animal in the wilderness that hasn't eaten for so long. They are going to go on a crawl trying to eat or die trying. And that's where I was at. 
for my kids. And so it was, it was nonstop. That was every single day of my life. And I'm telling you that, you know, obviously I had to drop out of school for some time. I had to figure out what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. Um, I got finally to a place where, you know, I was, I was able to find a little teeny tiny one bedroom for all three of us until I figured out how we were going to get through. But with that lifestyle of constantly watching the clock, every minute account counted for, every second accounted for, because I'm getting up in the morning, making breakfast, making lunch, and making dinner, all three at the same time within the hour and a half, because I got to drop this one off over here, this one off over here, get to, get to work over here. And then praise God that I had a neighbor that I clicked with so well, and she's such a beautiful woman that she was like, go back to school, girl, go back to school. I can watch the kids. I was like... Yes. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, now I got to bump it up to a higher level to make sure that she's not working so, so much that because I can't lose this woman now that's saying that she's going to watch my kids because this is now I'm starting to rebalance my life again. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like now double timing it. You know, I'm up until one in the morning doing homework, waking up at six or five to make sure everybody is good. And like, Every lunch, I'm taking a nap. Every break, I'm taking a nap just so I can refuel myself for the next few hours, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about this a long time. So <laughs> up until uh, my daughter was 22 and she was getting ready to leave, you know, the home, the nest, she said, Mom, you know, I really appreciate everything you did for me, you know, during my upbringing. I know that you were the best mom that, you know, you were you, I know that you were the best mom that you could have been based on not having one, because I always talked about that. And she said, you know, I was a helicopter mom, if anything. She wasn't allowed to do much or go or 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 get away with much because I was just always there. And she said, and as close as you were to me, as easy as it was to reach out and touch you and play and all that, she said, emotionally, you were absent. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? what are you kidding me what what are you talking about and i took it personal it was a very low blow to me because of everything that i've been through and everything that i was doing as a mom for my children for her to tell me that i was not emotional or emotionally available i'm like i love you i do you know everything that i've done for that love towards you like you know so it was um that moment that I had to accept that I did not protect her the way that I had intended to protect her, that I did repeat a pattern that was in, you know, that was imposed on me as it relates to not being emotionally available. And I had to accept that I just didn't know what the emotional availability was or is just because I really never, ever, ever had it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I shifted my focus from, you know, survival slash desperation slash protector and all that kind of stuff to, okay, I, I need to fix this. I need to understand what emotional awareness is. What is emotional intelligence? And I started with the five love languages. I started with that book. Yes. 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 Yep. And perfect, I made, I made her read that book with me. I made her take those Ooh. tests with me. Oh, yeah. I don't want to say I made her. I asked her. <laughs> well, you know what? If she brought it to you, I'm sure she was more than willing. And how wonderful of a mother that I hope you understand that you were, that she was. She felt it was okay to talk to you about this. 
because that's not always the case. Right. I do appreciate that she felt safe and vulnerable at the same time mm -hmm. to share that with me. And because she knows I'm I'm short and mm -hmm. um, and she knows that when it comes to emotions, you know, I'm shorter. <laughs> so for her to have that much vulnerability in her and and for me to at least be at a place where she felt safe enough to share that with me that did mean a lot to me and that's what that's what resonated after you know maybe 48 hours that um <laughs> that I that I had another I had another mission to accomplish you know um because after doing all that what good is all that what good was all of that if this is how she feels at the end you know so it was really, really important to me. And, um, and you know, it's about seven years later now, and we're, we're solid. We have a great relationship. And I'll tell you that in the beginning, she thought I was, you know, joking around when I was, when I was making real efforts, when I was showing the affection or the, her love language, when I learned what her love language was, and I started loving her that way, she thought I was being sarcastic. She thought that I was just, you know, pulling strings or whatever. And I was like, girl, listen, you want this or you don't want this because <laughs> you're going to push me away real easy. I need you to check yourself. Like, tell me. <laughs> right. We talked about it. Now either you want it or you don't. <laughs> right. Because the way you're making me feel when I'm when I'm being vulnerable, you're not making me feel safe. Right. Right. That's that communication. That's beautiful. Oh my goodness. So then I was like, oh crap, you know, well, cool. Cause you know, my kids are about eight years apart. And I said, well, now I get to apply this to my son before he reaches his twenties. And you know, so, so we're, we're always, it's a, it's a constant intentional effort that is made. And, um, you know, not saying that everything is, is perfect by any means whatsoever, um, but we've definitely grown together and we've definitely gotten through a lot of what could have been, you know, detrimental to our to our livelihood, to our mental um, well-being, you know, to our emotional well-being, to, you know, just being able to comprehend or, or understand, you know, why or how certain things happen. I don't focus on those things. What I do instead is say, okay. What are we going to do now that this happened? If it's out of your control, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit there? You you have choices. You know, you could sit there and choose to be like, why, why, why? Or, okay, let's figure out. Let's figure it out. You know? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, I, I teach my kids and, and clients is, you know, if you don't know who you are, after a traumatic experience that's totally normal it's completely human um and when you don't know who you are during that time you definitely know who you're not Ooh, and good. so as soon as you know yeah as soon as you know who you're not you can start building your boundaries right there start building your boundaries around who you're not mm -hmm. and with time with the proper healing with the tools that are absolutely needed for these types of like heightened traumatic experiences, you know, you'll get the learning to who you are and yes. those boundaries can shift when, you know, they're fluid. It's a living being just like you, as you change and you shift, so should your boundaries, you know? Right. 
And uh, so, go ahead. Question. So when did you identify it as post-traumatic growth? When did that come okay. in? So it took me a while because A, um, being in my situation, I couldn't seek outside resources. I had no idea what even to look for. And mm -hmm. I had no time to look for it anyways. It was all about protecting and providing. I had to put food on the table. Um, what I can say, because I'm going to get back to that question, what I can say is that once I realized that I was a victim during that time frame, I, I stepped into being victimized. I was no longer a victim. I was victimized. Okay. As I grew through that understanding of not identifying myself as a victim, but accepting that I was victimized, when I realized that I was never going to allow something like that to happen again, when I would not let somebody bend the boundary again and me accept it, I realized at that point that I was a survivor. Once I realized that I was no longer victimized, that I was a survivor, then I knew I had reached post-traumatic growth because I grew, I grew personally, mentally, emotionally. I gained so much strength and wisdom from all that I had gone through with that, with that time and as a child mm -hmm. that it was, it was time to now instill different coping mechanisms to my kids, different, different pieces of wisdom from experience and exposure to eliminate, I guess, repeated patterns and to be able to see and identify things before they even happen as it relates to who you are, what you accept, what you don't accept and how you, how you carry yourself. You have to know that you're only in control of you and nobody else. Yes. Yeah. And once you get to that place, I believe that's a, that's a growth. That's growth from that trauma. Mm -hmm. You're not identified with that trauma anymore. You're not going to put yourself in a situation or even, or even remotely close to a situation like that because you have that wisdom of being able to identify it prior to. Um, and, you know, that's just, and then what you do with it. And, and what I'm doing with it is what I'm doing with it right now, now that both my kids are adults. We are mentally and emotionally healthy with each other and independently. And I have their blessings to share this story that not only almost took my life and my unborn baby's life, but that impacted their lives also forevermore, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. I just, I just want to share with your audience that, you know, trauma driven responses are super human and extremely natural. But if we don't take a moment to step back to reflect on what we're doing, we may not even realize that we are in that mode of just mm -hmm. response, just responding. And if we don't take that moment to see who it's impacting, we're not going to see outside of ourselves. And that keeps us in this vicious cycle within our brain and our heart in this battlefield that consumes us. And doesn't allow to love out or receive love in. Right. Like, okay, so what I love about your story, and I hope that the audience understands, you were in a very 
abusive, toxic relationship with your parents that kind of continued on throughout your adolescent and then adulthood. The way that you dealt with it, it may look one way on the outside, but was still trauma for you on the inside. So you looked as if, oh my gosh, she's dealing with these things and moving forward, right? You were still doing your studies at the cemetery, hello, right? Signing yourself up for things at the school. Very educated, getting great grades. You know, okay, in your adolescent older teens, you started to find your own way. You're in your own way, right? But what was not happening is you were not healing that three-year-old pain, healing that six-year-old pain, healing that 14-year-old pain. And then, so it just continues to kind of pile up, right? So once you were able to sit back and say, okay, we have all of this going on. So now I can heal this for me. And then I can get with my daughter and heal things going on with her. And then my son. So you guys had one big healing fest, which is so beautiful that you were able to not only you you brought them, you know, with you. I think that's I think that's phenomenal. And now you guys can sit back and truly talk about it, truly be vulnerable with one another about what happens. And they are like, yes, mom, go tell that story so that other people because there are other people <laughs> that have gone through the things that you're gone, you're, you've gone through and are still going through them. They know that they can survive. They can heal. They are not victims. They were victimized. I love that. I just wanted to, to kind of put that out there. So what do you guys do now? Or do you offer anything for people who are, who are in that particular situation? that you were that there now that you were in before. So, so yes, I actually have two different um, entities. I do have a nonprofit called Confronting Domestic Violence. And that nonprofit is indeed to help real-time victims because as a real-time victim long ago, um, mm-hmm. there, there is no such thing as real-time resources you have you better stand in line and wait your turn you got an application an interview a follow-up interview uh uh whatever you have to you have to wait there is no such thing as something immediate and so what my nonprofit offers is relocation services so if there is somebody who's in a in a violent situation and they need to relocate for safety them and their children it, it that's my stipulation is that they have to have children um, <clears throat> then if they have a place that they can go for safety, my nonprofit actually helps them relocate without having to leave all their belongings behind. Because so often when we leave for safety, we're leaving everything behind because that's, we can only go with what we can carry, yeah. you know, and starting from scratch. And that's so detrimental to the child and, and the parent. Mm-hmm. It is just so unfair that when things you know, like that happen. that starting from scratch and starting from with zero is the answer. And I don't want that to always have to be the answer, you know? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and so, so as of right now, um, I'm just waiting for my 501c3 status. Um, but without a dollar being donated, I have a program ready to rock and roll in Nevada, which is deemed the third um, ranked state of domestic violence. So I'm so happy to be able to help in a place where it's high. Absolutely. You know? And then for my, um, then I also have a coaching business uh, mentorship programs available. That's called Be Your Incredible Self, mm-hmm. all spelled correctly. And I'll tell you that Be Your Incredible Self came from that night that I fought for our lives because, listen to me, mm-hmm. I am not, I had no time to see TV, okay? I have no interest in TV to this day. And a Marvel fan by far. I don't care about any of that stuff. That's to me, that whatever. But only... Two years ago that I learned of the Incredible She-Hulk. Everybody knows about the Incredible Hulk. Nobody knows about the Incredible She-Hulk. I know she got something coming out now, but two years ago. I was going to say, I just found out about her yesterday. I was at the mall and I saw this. I was like, She-Hulk? That is so amazing that you just said that. I just found out about her yesterday. No, no, but she's been around since 1980s. Okay? I had no idea. She's stronger. She's smarter. I mean, like, hello. And then I'm saying to myself, because I'm doing my research now, because I was like, oh, my gosh, that's who I turned into that night. I turned mm-hmm. into the Incredible She-Hulk because how can I get a 195-pound muscular man off my pregnant belly? You know, but hello. So, so when I did my research on this incredible She-Hulk, finding out that she's stronger and smarter and blah, 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 I'm like, you know what? The um, Whoever invented the Hulks, the Incredible Hulk, were mm-hmm. freaking genius because they are the only superheroes that I know of, because I don't know of many, that do not have superhero powers. They have superhuman powers. And if you think about it, they're triggered by their emotions. They become destructive monsters that they don't even like because they're reacting instead of responding. Sometimes the Hulk will retreat to avoid that confrontation, that conflict, that trigger. So so what I did was I took the Be Your Incredible Self because Mm -hmm. everybody wants to level up anyways. Everybody wants to be a better better version of themselves anyways. And I created a Be Your Incredible Self formula. My Be Your Incredible Self formula is applying situational awareness and combining that with your emotional intelligence so that you can control your triggers. Okay. I see it. I like it. (laughs) Yes. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done after you go through such a devastating, traumatic, toxic, yes. violent relationship. You know, you got to start with the mirror. You got to build that relationship with the mirror, because if you're talking smack instead of being sweet, you're already creating negative affirmations to yourself. Yes. And you already got a world out there doing that for you and to you. Why would you do it to yourself? Right. If you wouldn't even talk to somebody you love so much like that, how are you going to talk to yourself like that? Right. Absolutely. So I really work on changing and replacing those bad habits with positive ones. And I do that because it takes six to 12 months to break a bad habit, but it only takes 
21 to 28 days to start creating a new one. So instead of focusing on the bad, I'm like, bump that. We're going we gonna to focus on the good because that's a lot faster and it'll just replace it. Yes. What you focus on is what will grow. Yes. 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 I love that. Okay. So tell us where they can find more information about your programs. Do you have websites or, you know, Instagrams, anything yet? Okay. So, yes. Uh, be your incredible self, all spelled correctly. Uh, be your incredible self dot com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. Also, uh, same thing. Be your incredible self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right now that's just the. Those are just the platforms I'm starting at the moment. Um, it will grow as I grow yes. and learn more about how to do all this. <laughs> and let me tell you, we talked about this in the in the beginning a little bit. Number one, I honor you for being on here. I honor you for being strong enough to tell this story, you know, being vulnerable enough to letting people know what you've gone through and survived. And I thank you for being willing to help those that are behind you that are going through the same thing right now. Like you said, real time. Yeah. There, are, there are people listening right now that are in this situation. So to know that there there are people in front of them that have survived and is surviving, it lets them know that there are resources out there. There are people out there that they can talk to. There they have a tribe of a tribe of people that understand, you know? Right. And that means a lot to feel like you're not alone. That's okay. huge. So I thank you so, so very much for being on here to tell more about your, your, your phenomenal story, you know, like everything from birth. And I have to ask, have you ever had any conversation with your mom? You know, I will tell you that, um, just about just over a year ago, I was in a life-threatening accident. Um, and I did reach out to her. I reached out to her to let her know that, I was on my deathbed and she doesn't know if I made it or not to this day. She don't know. Okay. Okay. And, and I'm okay with that because you know what? She stayed true to her colors since I was a little girl. She's still who she is today. And I'm okay with that. And guess who's missing out? You know, not you, not you. you. I just, I just needed, it was in my head and I'm sure people are people, the other people were wondering as well as I was, if she was ever to be able to, see this beautiful woman that sits before me, you know, to be able to be proud that that is her daughter. But that is, that is, that's her, uh, that's her. Yeah, that's not the case. That's her loss. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I am so glad that you graced the Codependent Me podcast. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I will be putting your information in the show notes. I love that. I hope that people go out and learn so much more about P. What is it? PTG? Because, like you said, I had never, I had never, I had never, I can't even get that out. I had never heard of it myself. So thank you. I will, I'm going to do more research because that's so that's so good. Um, and of course, we will continue to be in touch because I think that there's a lot more work for us to do together. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And if there's anything that you'd like to 
any last thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience, please let them know. Yes, there is actually. I just, I want to tell everybody that the price you pay for ignoring your mindset is the biggest ticketed item you will ever pay. Mm. Mm. That's good. Oh. <laughs> Sheesh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> be your incredible oh, self. <laughs> be your incredible self. No doubt. Okay. So I want to take a moment to tell everyone thank you. Because I know that you can listen to any podcast out here, but you decided to listen to this one. I want to tell Agape, thank you so very much for being on the show. And I want to remind everyone that you matter and your story matters and have a fantastic day. Until next time. Bye. I understand that nothing is more valuable than your time. So thank you for listening. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Codependent Me. And check out my website at codependentme.org. Thanks so much. Have a great day.